All right, we started last, uh, two weeks ago, talking about the seven churches of Asia we find here in chapter 2, and we talked about Ephesus, and we moved into Smyrna, and I believe we got down to verse, the end of verse 9 uh, last week, if I'm correct, but basically we talked about how the church at Smyrna, uh, Jesus was saying some wonderful things about them. Uh, talked about how that they were very involved in works, but they were going through a great deal of tribulation and poverty. We talked about how the poverty was because of the persecution, and this poverty wasn't just being poor, this was destitution. And the tribulation they were going through, the word there means smashed down and squeezed out. Uh, They were having an awful, awful time because of the persecution they were facing. And um, But he explained that they were indeed rich because they were Christians. And not only were they being hit by the Roman people because of the fact they were Christians, but there was a big Jewish population in Smyrna who said they were Jews, but they really weren't. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. Jesus instead says they are the synagogue of Satan. And that's where we stopped last week. But then he goes on, beginning at verse 10, and this is the amazing thing. He just gets through talking about how that they're just being smashed down and squeezed out. But then he says in verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thy faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now I want you to think for a moment. Jesus has just got through talking about how they were going through tribulation. They were being smashed down, squeezed out. They were destitute because of the persecution they were facing. And lo and behold, what does Jesus tell them now? It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Now that teaches a very valuable lesson about Christianity. Christianity, we've never been promised a bed of roses, have we? And... Those people who were Christians back then, they were Christians. They were dedicated. Can you imagine the people at the church at Smyrna, um, after everything they've gone through, they know now that they're going to go through some more? That'd be pretty discouraging, wouldn't it? You might say, well, I want to give up. I, I just can't do this. But the implication from the text here is these people weren't going to do this. In fact, they were going to hang on even to the point of having a knife put at their throat. He says, fear none of these things which you're going to suffer. The devil's behind all this. He's saying some of you are going to be cast into prison, that you're going to be tried. And then he goes on and he says something unusual. He says, ye shall have tribulation ten days. Now, we've talked about how that um, when you look at um, things in the book of Revelation that you need to take them figuratively until, unless you see something that leads you to believe otherwise. But if the 10 days here were literally 10 days, that wouldn't be much persecution, would it? In other words, these things are going to happen to you, but just last for 10 days and you'll be all right. Most people don't think that's what's happening here when he uses this phrase, 10 days. So help me out. What is he saying here when he uses, evidently as a symbol, talking about the persecution, the tribulation they were going to face? All right. I like that explanation. That may be what he's talking about, how that you're going to go through a period of persecution. 
It's going to be real persecution, but it's going to be limited. The time will come when it will end. In fact, there are some people who believe that this number 10 in Hebrew numerology means complete but limited. Okay, I don't know if you knew that before, but that's basically how they look at it. Anything else? Anybody like to add to that? Well, here's the way I like to look at it. Um, as I told you before, if you look at the book of Revelation, the Old Testament is just through it and through it and through it and through it. And the purpose of some of the things that are said, the symbols that are used in the book of Revelation is to bring people's minds back to the Old Testament and what happened in the Old Testament. Okay? So let's look at some Old Testament passages real quick. And I'm going to help, let you help me out. Um, Let's see, Jeremy, Genesis 31, 7. Um, Scott, let you look up Job 19 and verse 3. And Michael, if you'll do Daniel 1, 12 through 16. And Jeremy, once you find yours, read out loud so even Miss Chris can hear you. Okay, if you remember from Scott's class, this is the way that Laban is, is treating Jacob. And he said he changed his wages how many times? Ten times. All right. Uh, Who had Job? Okay. The people he's referring to is his so-called friends. And they came to him ten times trying to say, why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? Instead of being a helpful friends, boy, they just laid into him. And so Job says, you've done this ten times. All right. Michael, read uh, Daniel. 12 through 16, first chapter. People are familiar with that story of Daniel when he was taken into captivity, how that they wanted to give him all the king's dainties. Say it, Jeremy. <laughs> but, but Daniel said, no, you, you give me food that I can scripturally eat, basically, is the, the, uh, the idea there. And what did he say? He wanted to be tested for how many days? Ten days. Now, I want you to notice there's a lot kind of a pattern here. With Jacob, boy, he, Laban put it to him for, for ten times. But at the end, what happened with Jacob? It was better in the end. With Job, his friends, man, they came at him ten times. You're just not a good person. But Job hung in there. And what happened in the end? God blessed him even greater than he was blessed before. Daniel. He was put to the test for 10 days, and what was the outcome? Things were better than they were before. In fact, he becomes a prince of the Babylonian Empire. I don't know if that's what's happening here, but you kind of get the idea that this is symbolism. You know, you remember how Jacob went through it. You remember how Job went through it. You remember how Daniel went through it. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's not going to be pleasant while you're experiencing it, but it will come to an end and you will be better for it. And that might be all that's encompassed in just those two words. Can you imagine knowing your Old Testament so well that you just hear the words, it's going to last 10 days, and boom, those things start popping in your head, and it gives you the comfort that you need. That's it. Well, my thing is that usually when there's numbers and whatnot, it's symbolic. But it has to be more than, it has to be more than literal here. It has to be symbolic because... The persecution they were facing, it would make no sense for the last 10 days. Right, and you would have the actual devil throwing them in princes. And so there's, there's a mixture here. And, and undoubtedly with the, 
when he's talking to the churches because we're in, we're in a, two chapters here that's dealing with real people, that's interspersed with, with symbolic language. Like we obviously don't think that Jesus has seven stars in his hand. See what I'm saying? But yet we know those stars represent the churches that he's talking about. So you have it interspersed here. I can't say that tonight. But anyway, the main thing is they were going to have some tribulation. It was going to be more than what they were facing. But hang on. If you'll hang on, it'll be worth it in the end. In fact, he carries this idea of it's going to be worth it to the end by saying, be thou faithful unto death. And literally in the Greek here is the idea to be faithful to the point of death. It's not living the Christian life, being faithful. That was already expected. But it means that even if somebody threatens you by cutting off your head, throwing you to lines, burning you at the stake, sending you in the gladiator ring, whatever you do, do not deny Jesus Christ. Now, you'd have to put your thinking caps on. But if you go way back to a class I taught on church history, we talked about an elder who was, the, at, uh, who was a elder at the church at Smyrna that lost his life because he wouldn't deny Christ in 155 A.D. Who, anybody remember his name? Polycarp. Polycarp. Karen remembered. You get, you get the prize. Um, you get to go home with me. How's that? <laughs> Scott says, that's not much of a prize. <laughs> Polycarp, uh, the early church fathers wrote about the persecution here in Smyrna and how this uh, guy by the name of Polycarp um, was going to be burned at the stake if he wouldn't recount Jesus Christ and claim that Caesar was Lord. And they have recorded his last words, and I can't remember how exactly they went, but um, for eight, he said, for 86 years I have served him and he has not let me down. I'm paraphrasing. Why in the world... Would I turn my back on him now when he has never turned his back on me? And then he, of course, was burned at the stake. And there's some uh, traditions and whatnot that people have added that kind of make it uh, into something that's really not. But anyway, he was a real man, and uh, we have record of him, and he died in 155 A.D. So uh, you can tell if that was happening in 155 A.D., and the date of this book uh, is around A.D. 90, 96, A.D. 100, Persecution in Smyrna was going on for a long time. I would say it was going on longer than 10 days. But it would come to an end. And when it did come to an end, the end would be better than what it was before. In fact, he even tells them how regardless, if even if you had to die during this 10-day tribulation, the end is still better than before because what does he say? Even if you die for me, what happens? You get a crown of life. Uh, the word for crown here is not the royal crown, which is diadem. You've heard that word in songs before, diadem. It means a royal crown. But this is the crown Stephanos that we get the word Stephen from. I have a brother named Stephen, and that's where that word comes from. Um, it means the victor's crown. It's the crown that was given to people when they won the Olympics or finished the race or won the wrestling match. They were to get a Stephanos. And so... Jesus' saying is, if you'll put up with this tribulation, it's going to last for 10 days, even to the point where you have to give up your life, you're going to receive the victor's crown. And, of course, that is a home in heaven, and it's in direct contrast to what we're going to be reading about in verse 11. 
He makes the contrast of the crown of victory, as we're going to see in the end of verse 11, as, as opposed to the second death. So any more questions or comments about verse 10? And by the way, this idea of Stephanos, have you ever noticed where um, in a lot of old religious paintings, you'll see a halo around people? That's where this came from, more than likely. It was the crown, victor's crown. It's interesting, you read through the entire Bible, you never find a single mention of halos or people having a ring around their heads or anything like that that you see in so many paintings. Uh, some people think they borrowed it from other religions and even pagan religions, the idea. But most, a lot of people think that this idea, that was supposed to represent the crown of victory. You know, um, the angels had halos and the saints had ha- halos because they received the crown of victory. That's a little anecdotal information that will not be on the test. So don't worry, I just thought you might want to know that. All right, let's look at verse 11. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And once again, even though this is uh, directly addressed to the angel of the church, this is something that applies to all, even in the other churches, and that would include us. It says, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And the Bible basically describes for us what the second death is. Because we can turn over to Revelation chapter 20, and he gives us um, a description in verse 14 of chapter 20. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And um, verse 8 of chapter 21, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So um, the book of Revelation defines for us what the second death is, but once again, he's using symbolic language, because personally, I don't believe that eternity in hell is actually a real live lake full of fire and brimstone. I don't believe that. I think that's symbolic for torment for excruciating pain. Uh, There's nothing worse than being burnt. Imagine being burnt for all eternity. So we have to ask the question, though, why did he use the phrase second death? Okay? And there's some people who hold that particular view. There's others that hold the view that the first death is separation of the soul from the body. The second death is separation of the soul from God. Um, you remember, what did Jesus tell those who um, were, uh, remember he had them one on the right and on the left, the sheeps and the goats, and you get down to Matthew uh, 25, verse 41, he says, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, for I know you not. There's a departure, there's a leaving, there's a separation. You'll never be in the presence of God in Jesus Christ again. And um, sec- um, somebody I can't remember it right off the top of my head, but somebody uh, look up 2 Thessalonians 1.9 and read that to me. All right. The everlasting destruction is based upon what? What does it say? Being removed from what? The presence of the Lord. Um, the worst thing about hell is the fact of who's not there. And God's not there. You remember when Jesus tasted a little bit of hell for every one of us? What did he say? He said, Eli, Eli, lama shebechthani, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's when he tasted the second death. Jesus died on the cross, but because he was carrying the sins of the entire world and he had to face the punishment of the entire world, how was, he, how was that taken care of? For the first time in his entire eternal eternalness, God turned his back on him. God disappeared. And that is the worst part about hell. And the Bible uses all kinds of vivid, vivid imagery trying to get us to appreciate hell uh, and how terrible it is, the darkness, the gnashing of teeth, the, the burning of the fires, the eternal flames. But it's all to make us understand and appreciate the fact of how awful, how awful it is to be separated from God. Did I see a hand over here yet? Well, absolutely. But I, that's why I don't think we really appreciate how bad hell really is. Um, but the, the, the thing to me, and I think this is brought out here in this verse, is being separated from God, we don't realize how wonderful it is to have God in our lives, even when we take him for granted. Those people out there who are the worst sinners, who, have, who are the worst atheists, they don't understand what it's like to have God in their lives and the blessings they get to enjoy and, and the sun that he shines on their lives. But once that's gone and you're totally separated from God Almighty, our Father in heaven, our creator, mm. And so, like I said, some people think it's, talk, it's talking about you know, the different uh, deaths that come with baptism and, and then the judgment day. Uh, but we know that death is a separation. And so I kind of lean toward the idea that the second death here is the second and final separation. Um, because um, I just, my way I've always looked at it. Um, why, just out of curiosity, you've maybe heard me talk about this before, but why does there need to be something like the second death? Why is the first death not enough? Uh, we have some religious friends who look at this particular verse, and they say the second death here is talking about being annihilated, that you'll be the destruction. The second death here means you're really dead, finally dead, completely dead, and that's the end of it. And um, that doesn't fit because you put annihilation there. It doesn't fit with the first one. You don't have first annihilation and second annihilation. You have first death and second death. But anyway, what would be the benefit of that, Jeff? Why would we have to have a second death? Absolutely. Um, if you're the most heinous criminal on the earth and they give you the death penalty and they put you in an electric chair and kill you, basically what's happened to you is what's going to happen to every one of us. Now, their life was shortened, but then again, there's people's lives who are very shortened because of death. Sometimes child, children die early. Sometimes teenagers die early. Sometimes young adults die early. Death is not the ultimate punishment. The ultimate punishment would be total separation from God, and that's how, the, how God's justice would work. Yes, Jeff? Absolutely. Absolutely. So he tells them that they will receive, he's making a contrast here, you'll receive that, victory, that crown of victory, and you will not be hurt at the second death. You will not be separated from God, and that's far more important as you're dealing with this tribulation that's going to last for a period of time, hang on. Go back and think about the Old Testament. Think about Jacob. Think about Job. Think about uh, what Daniel went through, how they had to go through a period of testing for a while. And it wasn't pleasant. But they hung on, they went through it, and in the end, the end was better than the beginning. And I think that's kind of the idea that they have here in this text. And that gives the verse hope. That gives the, the verse meaning to, to build people up and make them stronger. 
Uh, anything anybody like to add before we leave this first and we move on to the, the next church here? But, well, even, even the rich man wanted but, Abraham to send somebody back to his brothers because they don't want to come to this place is what he said. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you hear somebody put it like you just put it, it's a very flippant and lackadaisical way of viewing things. And they think, oh, it's just going to be whatever. I don't want the other whatever. All righty, good comment. Well, let's look at the church at Pergamos. And um, you might have some different variations of the word Pergamos in your translation. I'm not sure what every translation has. Some translations have the female version of the town as far as the Greek word. And that's what the King James has. Some of them have the neuter uh, name, which is Pergamon. Uh, but anyway, it's the same city that we were talking about here. Give you a little background of the city. Um, some people call this the church in Sin City. Some people call this the church in Hell's Headquarters. Imagine living in a place like that. Um, do I? Uh, this church was on top, I mean this church, this uh, town was on, uh, the city of Pergamos was on top of a, a, a big hill, big mountain, and it was where it was originally built, and then it came down into the valley as it grew. But it's known for the fact that it was first built on this mountain there in Pergamos. Um, it was the capital city of this area of, the, of southern uh, Asia. And so it was the place where all the government Roman officials were, where they kept all the records, where they um, um, did all the administration function that needed to be done. Um, it was the capital city for Rome for around 400 years. So it's been a capital city for a long time. Yes, Karen. Anyway, this particular city is still in existence. Um, it goes by the name of Bergama now, B-E-R-G-A-M-A, if you want to look it up, Julie. And you can still go there and visit. And what's amazing about this particular town is a lot of the original ruins are still there um, that were there when John wrote this particular letter, which is kind of uh, uh, neat. And um, that's basically, I'm going to tell you some more about the town, if Karen will let me here in just a moment. But before, before we do, though, I want to look at uh, the rest of verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, as been the case earlier, he um, uses a description of Jesus that's already been given in chapter 1. And I think there's a reason why he picks the... Uh, Symbolism he uses to describe Jesus to fit the town. But this time he describes Jesus as being the one that has the sharp sword, the two edges that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. And what does that mean, the sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus? Absolutely. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to cut us under to the joint and marrow of the body. In other words, it can cut you either in a good way or it can cut you in a bad way. You can cut your heart and you can become a Christian or it can cut your heart and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, that's how the Word of God works. Um, in this particular setting, though, we need to make sure that we understand that a sword, especially in this town that was the capital city of this area, there was Roman soldiers, and those Roman soldiers used those swords to, to show their what? Power, authority. And this is the idea here. Who really has the power and authority? When we think about the Word of God, oftentimes we just simply think, well, those are some words. But the words of God have power. 
They have authority. It's Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit in Genesis, the first chapter, that said, let there be light. And there was light. So the emphasis is seeing Jesus as someone who has the final word. He is the one that has power and authority. It's not just the speaking of the words. It's the action that takes place because of the words. So that's the picture that they give this church in uh, Pergamos. And by the way, we know nothing about the church at Pergamos, how it got started, what it happened to them in the meantime, and what happened to them afterwards. We just really don't know anything about them. But there was a church there in Pergamos because John's writing to them. But then he goes on in verse 13 and he says, wow, we're out of time. I know thy works and where thy dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest uh, fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. A lot going on in verse 13. In fact, this will be all time. Hopefully when we get through it in the few minutes we've got left. Um, first of all, he knows their works, and as is always the case in these letters, he, he says, I understand the appreciation, I understand, appreciate what you're doing. Uh, works means that these, they weren't just sitting idly by, they were working. They were involved. And, but then he says, and I know where you dwell. I know where you live, literally. I know where you live. What does that mean? Why is Jesus saying, I know where you live? Well, you know, where everybody lives. But why is he saying this to them? Well, it could be. That he wants to make sure they, he, that they know that he knows the situation they've got living in the city that they're living in. This wasn't just any ordinary city. In fact, he goes on and says, this is where Satan's seat is in the King James. The actual Greek word there is the word thronos, which means Satan's throne. This is Satan. This is where Satan's throne is. In other words, this is Satan's headquarters. Y'all want to know where Satan's headquarters is? You thought it was in hell? No, it's in Pergamos. That's what Jesus says. He says Satan's throne is in this town. And in fact, at the the last part of verse thirteen, uh, where you live is where Satan it lives. He lives with you. You're living in the same town that Satan lives in. That's where his throne is. Here's what we need to spend a little time with, which, which we might can learn a little bit. Why do you think Jesus called Pergamus Satan's throne? Now, Karen, let's go back to what you wanted to get ahead on. I'm going to let her go first since she first said something about it. What were you going to say about it? There is a very famous altar in the town of Pergamus that was the altar of Zeus. And who is Zeus, Karen? He's he's the head god. He's the god of all the other gods. He's the main god. He's the main. uh, Romans called him Jupiter. The Greek called him Zeus. But he was the what's that? Yeah, he was could throw light and bolts. He was the biggest and the baddest god of all. And there in the city of Pergamos, there was an altar to Zeus that was 800 feet up in the air on top of the mountain. It was 120 feet long. It was 112 feet wide. It was 20 foot tall. It was sat in front of the temple of Athena, who was his wife, and they offer sacrifices to this pagan god constantly. There was always smoke rising up from the altar of Zeus. It is no longer there, but there is a replica of this particular altar in one of the museums in Berlin, and I can't remember the name of the museum now, but it probably has some German name. Okay? But uh, there's a replica of it there. 
And so uh, this was a very pagan city as far as the worshiping of the Greek mythological gods. They had gods everywhere in this town. And Zeus was the one that was the one that was in charge of all of them. So he was the one that surveyed the city and had all these other gods running around the city. In fact, what's interesting about Pergamus, you'll find this surprising, but they have uncovered in the ruins a statue, and at the base of that statue, it says, to the unknown God. Just like we read about when Paul was at Mars Hill. So he was talking about how you got... All of these kind of gods and all these altars to all these gods. You've even got a god to the unknown god in case you miss one. Well, the same thing happened in Pergamos. They wanted to make sure they covered every single possible god there could be. And so some people think that um, the god god that's being talked about here is Zeus. This is where Zeus, who false god, would represent Satan. Maybe that's what's talking about. Another thing that's interesting about Pergamos and gods, too, though, is that there was a medical center there in Pergamos, but this medical center was devoted to a god that was, the birthplace of this god was in Pergamos. Um, I can't pronounce it very well because it's such an unusual name, but it's um, Asipolos, if I'm pronouncing that correct. It's A-S-L-E-L-P-I-O-S, if you want to look it up. But um, he was a god of medicine, and they established a medical center there that was based on some measure of medical care, but mostly it was pagan rituals. And they had a, a road that ran up to this medical center called the Sacred Road. And it was believed if you walked on this road barefoot going toward this shrine, this medical center for this Greek god, that you would uh, literally leave death behind you with every step. And eventually, in this region, this particular god that I can't pronounce that was a part of this medical center was known as the Savior of the World. And you see some blaspheming there going on if you were a Christian, and maybe that's why this was called Satan's Throne. But there's other reasons why sometimes people believe that this was called Satan's Throne. You, you can find so much stuff written about this, pages and pages in commentary, But some people believe that this was Satan's throne because of the political power that it had. As I said, this was a capital city of the Roman Empire. Uh, They dealt with all the administration. It was an administrative center. And in this particular town, there are four temples to emperors for emperor worship. So Smyrna had temple Caesar worship. This one had four temples centers that were Caesar worship. In fact, you can go and visit one of them today. There's still one in existence. It's not being used that way, but it's a relic that you can go visit, uh, one of the temples uh, that are still there. And so um, you can see how that emperor worship would be a very big part of this particular area and how if it was the administrative center, they would have records on people and they would know whether or not you were doing what you're supposed to as far as worshiping Caesar. In these temples, you were supposed to go in and burn some incense to the current emperor, whoever it was at this time, and then you would have to say, Caesar is Lord, and then they would give you a certificate as you leave, and then you could go worship freely however you wanted. And if you want to go worship Zeus, that's fine. You want to go worship Athena, that's fine. But the first place you had to worship, you had to get that certificate, and you had to say that Caesar is Lord, and then you're free to do whatever you want to. Well, that's a problem for Christians, isn't it? 
and you say you're walking down the road and a Roman soldier stops you and says, I want to see your certificate, and you don't have it, what's happened to you? And so some people think that the reason this is called Satan's throne is because um, it was the throne of Caesar because it emphasized Caesar worship, but that's really Satan's throne that's making you do this. This is all Satan, and you'll see more of this as we go through the the book of Revelation, how um, Rome is compared to Satan. There's other people who think that this was the throne of Satan because of the fact that it was a very cultural place for its time. Um, in fact, you had the University of Asia Minor there. Jeff, I don't know what their football team were called or anything. Um, I don't think they had one team called the Lions, one team called the Christians. I don't know if they had that or not. Um, but what's interesting there uh, in Pergamos, there was a library that had 200,000 volumes of books, only second to the one in Alexandria, okay? But what's interesting, you notice I said books? This was the very first place that ever used books. And there's an interesting story behind that. For years, everybody would um, write on um, papyrus, okay, which was a a plant that came from Egypt. It would be pressed, and the fibers would be blended together and make something, and they would be able to write on it and roll up in a scroll, and you'd have a scroll there, okay? Well, sometime in Pergamos' history... The Egyptian ruler, because he was mad about his library competing with the other library, quit sending papyrus to be used. And so the people living in Pergamos came up with the idea of having animal skins made into vellum, and then they were coated and whatnot until they turned into parchment. In fact, the word parchment comes from the word in the Greek, per, uh, per, per, what's the name of this town? I can't speak tonight. Pergamus, okay? It literally means Pergamus, okay? But they discovered that with parchment, it doesn't roll into scrolls. It keeps flattening back out unless you kept it bound up very tightly. So what did they do? They started binding the sheets of paper together and started making books. And that's the first time we've had books in history. And it all happened right here in this town of Pergamos because of the library that they had. But it was a huge library that served the university there, and they had over 200,000 volumes. And this was a place of philosophers, of poets, of scientists, of scholars. Um, So anytime you get all those people together, they come up with some crazy things, and usually it's not for Christians. Um, same time period that we're reading about, so it'd be around AD 90, 96, somewhere around there. They also had in this town a 10,000-seat Colosseum, and it's still there. You can visit these ruins. They're still there. And so you had all kinds of crazy uh, games that involved uh, torture and death and uh, immorality and paganism and whatnot. So there's some people who think that this particular town, man, uh, that's the reason why it was called the throne of Satan. So you have all kinds of stuff happening in this t- town. Maybe you combine all three of them. It still works that way. This is where Satan lived. This is Satan's headquarters. In fact, so we can finish this verse. We've only got a couple minutes left. Um, even though they were living in Satan's headquarters, they had hold fast to his name. They would, in other words, they would not deny the name of Jesus Christ no matter how it was put to them, um, what kind of persecution they were going to face. He wouldn't, they would not deny the faith of Jesus Christ. 
And even in those days wherein Antipas, and we don't know who Antipas was. We have no record of who this guy was. We don't know if he was young or old. We don't know if he was a new Christian or uh, uh, ancient Christian. We don't know if he was a deacon or an elder or a preacher or whatever. All we know is he was put to death because of his Christianity. It's interesting we see, see the church up at Smyrna and they say, hey, listen, the day's coming when you're going to be put to death. Well, in, Smyrna, in, in Pergamos, they were already doing that. And we have a guy's name who was being put to death. And the King James has, uh, was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. I realize that some of you will have a different name than martyr there. Witness, okay? But here's what's interesting. The Greek word that we get our name witness from is the word martyr. So that's why that they translated it martyr. And most people think that this is a reflection of uh, going back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 where Jesus was called the faith, uh, faithful witness or faithful martyr. Uh, he was put to death because of who he was. Antipas was put to death because of who Jesus was. Um, so that makes him the faithful martyr. And um, uh, you're living in a town that even Jesus himself describes as Satan's headquarters. But yet here's a church that is still hanging on, still hanging on. This is quite the praise that Jesus has given him. But as we're going to see uh, back this Sunday, because I'm going to teach Scott's class, I'm just going to pick up here when I teach Scott's class, we're going to see that they still had some problems in that church. Isn't it funny how no matter how good a church is, it still has problems? It's just weird like that, except for this one. It's, this one don't have any, does it? All right, very good. Our time is up. I appreciate all your good comments.